When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So today I want to uh, discuss a couple different topics, but I do want to start off with the precious metals market and and talk a bit about not only the price action since I last recorded my podcast on Tuesday, uh, but also uh, the demand side, the the investment demand side for silver and gold. Um, I'll get to that in a second, but I, I, I do want to start off with the price action. You know, on, on Tuesday, the story was... Uh, both metals dropping in price, but especially silver, uh, pretty significantly. Uh, you know, back into the fourteen dollar range, and uh, you know the story. I'll, I, pretty much since then has been well, back to to, to where they were prior to that drop. Uh, gold, you know, really around its um, to to its high, cycle highs, basically uh, around seventeen thirty, seventeen twenties in that range, uh, and silver back to the you know, the mid-15s, roughly speaking. You know, that gold-to-silver ratio is still way higher than than I think most people ever expected it to get. It's been there for a while now. Uh, but silver did recover some of that, and gold uh, continues to trade uh, very well. And, and you know, when it's, when it's all said and done, I mean, I see so many bullish reasons for silver and gold to go up. I mean, there's always this... There's always this potential, this specter of this deflation, which which I get. You know, uh, deflation in, in today's economic times would not at all be surprising, even with the massive amount of fiscal and and monetary stimulus that we've seen delivered by governments and central banks around the world. It wouldn't be surprising to see, you know, some amount of what some people would call you know deflation, and certainly. Uh, my my feeling on it is that you know in the stock market side of things we're we're probably going to get another significant drop, significant spike in volatility. I don't know if it will be as significant or as violent as the one back in March, uh, but I think it's still coming. I mean, it's it, you know the stock market is is out of touch with reality, the economic reality of the United States and of the world, and and. It would make sense, not that anything has to make sense in today's economic or market world, but it would make sense for a pretty significant pullback in the stock market. And of course, that could put some pressure on silver and gold as well uh, for for margin call reasons, for whatever, you know, the the whole everything goes down type of situation. We'll we'll see. Um, But silver and gold, I mean, uh, all things considered, are in an incredibly strong position. You know, I think it was last summer that the the whole sell in May and go away story for precious metals it didn't hold to be true. You know, it was in June that uh, w- with the Fed, um, I think it was them cutting rates ultimately, and, and I want to say June or July, I forget the month now, um, as well as, uh, you know, they, they began to taper their quantitative tightening around that time period. It might have been a little earlier that they had announced it. I, again, I don't, I don't remember the exact timing of it, but but that was when gold really broke out of its multi-year trading range. Um, silver performed fairly well during that time period. And and since then, I mean, it's been a move up from, 
you know, at 1350 to 1360, if I remember correctly, that was the resistance range up to 1400 and then up to 1500 and then 16, 17, obviously pullbacks on the way, but, but here we are at 1700 plus dollar gold. And, and I think that this summer, partly because of, of the, the recession, COVID and et cetera, uh, but partly just because maybe that's, that's not going to be the trend anymore, especially in a bull market, that, that maybe we can do away with the whole sell in May and go away uh, thing. I, I, I think a lot of those classic rules just don't apply to, uh, to today's markets. Uh, it's, it's much more complex than just looking at maybe uh, some, some yearly um, trends you know, throughout the year, from month to month, week to week. Uh, so, I mean, I, again, a very bullish setup. And, and, and a lot of what I'll be talking about here today, um, precious metals and otherwise related, is, is going to be playing into that. And, and one of the ones that I want to talk about is uh, demand. On the, demand on the, the demand, the investment demand side for silver and gold. And, and what I am, am really wondering, and it's, it's impossible to quantify this, I think, but but what I am wondering is is what is the pent up physical demand for silver and gold like right now? And, and what I mean by that is that physical is is not what some people you know would would call unobtainium. You know you just can't get silver and gold, physical silver and gold. Um, however, generally speaking. Of course, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, it's very high premium right now, and the delivery time, the wait time is is pretty darn long for for retail investors. And I'm sure those, um, you know, if if you were trying to somehow take delivery of of Comex bars or whatever, I mean, I'm sure the, the wait time's significant in that as well. But I'm speaking specifically to to people buying from from dealers, retail investors, like many of my stacker listeners. Uh, Long wait times and high premiums. You know, this is a, a rerun of, of the Great Recession, you know, time period back then when, when we had very high premiums and long wait times. Of course, I wasn't in the market then. Um, but, but again, we can look at all this in retrospect and see it you know, playing out again before our eyes right now. However, one of the differences this time around is like, yes, there is a lot of demand out there. Right. This isn't just a lack of supply problem. In fact, I remember this was back in March, I believe, early March, um, late February, uh, in the midst of a ton of market turmoil, COVID-19, you know, the Fed, government action, all that. A lot of dealers, precious metals dealers, were, were sending out letters. They were saying, you know, look, um, the wait time on these orders are going to be longer than usual because our volume, I think a lot of them, it wasn't that they didn't have the, the, the merchandise, that they didn't have it. It was that they just didn't have enough staff on hand. I mean, hey, if you're a precious metals dealer, especially over these last couple of years, I mean, you, you can't just keep everybody on staff for like the busiest day of the year. No, I mean, it's, it's you, you keep enough people on staff to, to make ends meet and to ship out, you know, the average amount of orders. And if occasionally, you know, on a busy week, you know, orders take an extra day, then so be it. Well, I think a lot of them were, were just totally overwhelmed. In fact, you know, Jam Bullion in particular, one of the larger dealers, uh, you know, sent out an email basically saying, I, I want to say it was Jam Bullion, Jam or SD Bullion, I forget, had sent out an email that one of those days was the busiest day, I, I, I do think it was Jam Bullion, the busiest day that they had ever had. 
as a precious metals dealer, busier than anything during the Great Recession, which I assume they were around for. Granted, you know, online ordering probably wasn't as widespread back then, but busier than than anything since then. Busier than Brexit, busier than the 2011 run-up, busier than, um, you know, you name it, the the Eurozone, uh, some of their various crises, uh, bigger than the Trump election, Brexit, I mean, whatever, bigger than all of that. And that, I mean, that really should show us that this is a demand thing too. However, as I said before, I, I do think that there's some level of pent-up demand. People that are unwilling to pay these premiums, whatever. Um, and, and part of it is that there's a lot of supply that just cannot make it to the market. Or is not making it to the market. Or, you know, to some extent, um, isn't coming out of the ground, period, because mines are being closed. I, I don't know how widespread that is. I know Mexico had mentioned something about it. But then um, there was some... I forget what it ultimately became of it. Um, they were they were doing a thirty month or thirty day closure of of non essential businesses, uh, but I'm not sure what mines did or did not close, and I'd have to you know check up on that. But but again, uh, across the world, that, that would be not not unexpected to to see mines as well as refineries close, and uh, and so not as much supply to make it to the market. Period. But Another, I think, good representation of this is is the U.S. Mint and their sales totals for for April um, thus far. For a, uh, to put this in context, for March and and I believe they ran out of Silver Eagles in March. Um, nearly five and a half million uh, American Silver Eagles in the month of March. Put that in context, in February they sold six hundred fifty thousand. January they sold uh, over 3.8 million, but generally speaking, the first month of the year is a pretty strong month for mint sales because retailers are getting their hands on all the new newly minted uh, coins from the new year. Um, but no, over 5.4 million ounces just in the month of April, and that probably would have been much higher if they'd been able to provide as much supply as was demanded. Uh, sorry, for March, that's for March. For April, 350,000. Not even half a million. Now, is that because demand's not there? No, of course not. It's because they're not making eagles, to my knowledge. I know West Point Mint, I think it was, had closed. I don't know if the entire used mint complex has closed or not, but to my knowledge, they're not really minting much in the way of silver eagles right now, hence the, the massive premium on much of them. Now, does that mean that you know people that can't get their hands on new eagles just aren't going to buy silver? No, probably not. They're going to either pay that premium for Silver Eagles or they're going to buy some other product, right? Um, however, I do wonder that when some of these temporary changes from the COVID-19, as far as um, stay-at-home orders, business closures, um, the effect on refineries and mints and mines, once that passes, slowly but surely, uh What's the pent-up demand going to be like for precious metals? Because guess what? I mean, once that part of the crisis is over, the, the acute portion, the, the COVID-related portion, once that isn't over but becomes maybe less impactful, the economic crisis is probably just beginning. I hate to say it, but still just beginning. We're You know, if this was a baseball game, 
we're only maybe in the second inning right now, right? And uh, and by the time the COVID illness is, you know, let's say late summer, and it, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be gone. I don't think it will be. I'm not going to make a prediction that we won't have a second wave. I think that's a good possibility that we probably will, but. It, it may not be as impactful. We'll have a better handle on it through testing, hopefully, maybe some treatment, et cetera. But by then, um, we're only going to be in the third inning of this baseball game, right? We got a full, we're not even halfway through the game. And, uh, you know, some of those later innings really get drawn out sometimes. Wouldn't be surprised if we went into overtime. Of course, you, you, know, you, know, you know what I've said on this um, channel multiple times in the past, that this recession is going to be, Potentially a, 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 de- a depression-like downturn that could last 10-plus years, right? So I think that demand is still going to be there for precious metals, you know, assuming the, the average retail investor still has cash to, to, to pay for it, right, around the world or in the United States. Um, so that's out there, and I think that's going to influence the price of precious metals going forward. But I want to switch gears here for a second, uh, well, really, for the rest of my podcast today um and there's there's a few things i wanted to talk about uh we'll start with this one um this is an article from zero hedge put things in context the history of the biggest bailouts in history uh this was put together by uh deutsche banks jim reed this is shared over on zero hedge and and what he did is he took a, a whole bunch of large bailouts since 1970 um, and put them in dollar terms, U.S. inflation-adjusted terms. So, um, on this list, starting back in 1970, going through today, include the Penn Central Railroad, uh, Lockheed, the aviation company, I'd assume, uh, Franklin National Bank, New York City, uh, Chrysler. I'm sure many of you guys, you, you old-timers, you you remember a lot of these, uh, Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust Company, um, Savings and Loan Crisis, Mexican Peso Crisis, um, Long Term, uh, LTCM, I forget, but part of the Asian crisis, and I forget the name of the firm. I actually Googled it right before this, because I, but uh, since in that interim, I've already forgotten it. Let's see here. Long Term Capital Management Fund Crisis. Um, airline Industry in, in, you know, post 9-11. And then the Great Recession. You had the Great Recession, Great Financial Crisis Response in its various forms, Bank of America bailout, and then the U.S. Uh, QE Round 2, because QE Round 1 was part of the, the initial Great uh, Financial Crisis Response. The EU stabilization, Greece, and then um, later on we had U.S. Q, uh, QE 3 and, and 4. Um and then uh, in, later on, we had um, some ECB, you know, more QE and et cetera. And then finally, in, uh, now in, in 2020, we have our COVID-19 response from, from various. And, and what he was looking at here primarily was major U.S. Uh, US economy and major U, uh, European economies. So, you know, if you wanted to, you could add to this list Japan. You could add, obviously, China. You could add some other major uh, countries to this list um if you wanted to actually and, and i think it would make sense you could add the imf to this list as well and, and look at their bailouts uh, their massive loans etc for for various countries around the world 
Um, however, so what he does here is he actually, he, he makes two charts here. He, he does one on a, um, a normal scale chart, and then he does one on the logarithmic, right? Because on the normal one, none of them really uh, show up, amount to anything, until the financial crisis. With the exception, you can, you can see the savings and loan crisis bailout, and you can see, uh, barely, the Mexican peso crisis bailout. But otherwise, they're, they're, I don't even know if there's even a little bit of shading under most of them, because they're so small, until the financial crisis. Right? So what he does is he puts it on a logarithmic chart, which is helpful, and it shows just how much, is, as, you know, as the article points out, the currency for these bailouts has transformed from tens of billions to trillions to now, you know, tens of trillions. You know, there's already talk in the um, in Congress about another bailout package in in similar scale to the I think it's called the CARE package, I, the CARE bailout. I don't know the exact name of it. Um, that that involved among other things, I think the stimulus checks and the small business bailout. The first one, at least, or one of the first ones. But but going back to the 70s, again, these are inflation-adjusted. Penn Central Railroad and Lockheed, under $10 trillion. Chrysler, under $10 trillion. You know, Franklin National Bank, New York City, Continental, uh, Illinois National Bank and Trust Company, you know, around $10 billion, maybe a little bit below, a little over. You know, savings and loan uh, was, was a few hundred billion. Uh, have I been saying trillion? I should be saying billion here. Um, but then Mexican peso crisis, I think under a hundred billion, um, LTCM under a hundred, you know, only a, a few billion. Um, we had the airline bailout. I think that was over 10 billion, but then boom, you know, all of a sudden we're in the great financial crisis and we're talking about trillion dollar bailouts in the form of, of fiscal bailouts and then monetary bailouts, right? Just gets out of hand very quickly. Now we're, we're a whole magnitude higher and all of a sudden we're in tens of trillions, not trillions, but tens of trillions um, this time around, right? And and again, we're we're only seeing the beginning of this, honestly. You know, he put that chart together, um, but but I don't think you could. I mean, in the year twenty twenty, anything that happens twenty twenty bailout wise is going to be related to that, obviously, and so that could easily double in size. I mean, remember these bailouts only began back in what March, really? Um, maybe late February. By, by the United States and Europe, mostly. Um, China, I'm sure, had some stimulus package and whatnot, uh, or at least, you know, monetary interventions. But, but I mean, in terms of, of the U.S. And, and the Fed, I mean, yeah, they had their repo market interventions in March. They had their QE. They had their interest rate cuts. We had our stimulus packages and whatnot. But, but we're only in, you know, we're, we're not even to May yet. Right, just for some context, we're not even to May, and this could easily double in scale, triple by the end of the year if this economic slowdown sticks with us, which I think it will. Um, again, going back to precious metals, I mean that's another part of that story. Uh, the, the final two topics I want to talk about here today, um, maybe a bit more of a rant than anything else. And then the first one relates to the oil market, sort of. Uh, but but it's it's related to an article. This is um, by Vice, um, motherboard, which is tech by Vice. Okay, and it's an article written by a Jordan Pearson, 
published, it looks like, uh, April 21st. Titled, Is It Worth It to Buy a Used Tanker and Fill It with Cheap Oil? An Investigation. Now, this article, for the most part, it does a good job of kind of explaining this um, concept of, of what's going on in the oil market and is this a good idea or not. And, and he does a very good job of, of, um, of you know, for example, he, he, it, a lot of it's sort of tongue-in-cheek. He's, he's aware that he's not an expert in the oil market. You know, quote, let's take an exploratory and incomplete, possibly incompetent, dive into the economics of store and oil. That's not me adding the possibly incompetent. That's him, you know, so he's understanding. He doesn't have a handle on all this. And he does gloss over some things, you know. He does mention but doesn't really... In, uh, Really, really, the importance of something like being able to get WTI to a port if you want to load it onto a tanker, and, and the cost and, and infrastructure associated with that. Can you? Well, uh, yeah, obviously. Um, but but is that a possibility right now? You know, that's that's obviously kind of the problem, etc. However, of all the things in here, you know, throughout it, he kind of talks tongue and maybe not so tongue in cheek, but he does make comments here and there about the ridiculousness of you know of of pumping our um, crude oil out of the ground and and burning it and the unsustainable nature of it. And I get all of that. Now I think it's again maybe a bit of a poor understanding of you know how important fossil fuels are to the to the world. Like I get it, solar, wind. Um, they have the problems, and, and I would argue that they're not actually all that clean. But, you know, nuclear power, to some extent, you know, hydroelectric, you know, geothermal, you know, offshore um, wind or, or, or water, you know, I mean, all those things have a potential and whatnot, sure. But thus far, you know, with the exception of nuclear power, <laughs> their impact has been negligible, with the exception of nuclear power, and, and I would argue probably hydroelectric, which has been around for a long time. Solar and wind has been negligible, so I get this idea of let's get off of you know fossil fuels, but 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 there's a huge there, there's a reason that markets haven't decided to do that, and it's not just this you know lobbying effort by these evil businessmen. I'm sure that happens, sure, but but part of it is just that you know markets aren't going to swallow that because it just is way too expensive with current technology. And and obviously I'm not going to make this a a pro or anti solar and wind. I mean, they have their merits. I would love to have a solar powered house. It'd be difficult in northern Minnesota, but okay. There's there's merit to both of them. But um, you, you can't deny the fact that their impact on the grid has been negligible and very small in the whole scheme of things. And they're they're very expensive relative to coal and and crude oil and, and other natural, or not natural, but uh, fossil fuels. But anyways, you know, he talks about that, so it's, you kind of can see where he's coming from, and that's fine. The environmentalist viewpoint, whatever, that's fine. However, what, what really, I guess, bugged me is, is towards the end here, he talks about this crazy market. The, the whole point of what he's doing here is he's, he's trying to talk about just how crazy the market is in the oil market, which I would agree, it is nuts right now. Negative oil prices on Monday? I mean, come on. Like, that's that's unheard of. It doesn't make sense. How do you wrap your mind around that? Paying somebody to take your oil, which is supposed to be valuable, right? Um, and, and, and that's really the point of what he's saying here. Um, uh, let's see here. Quote, so it turns out that if you have $23 million lying around, a ton of contacts in the oil industry, and a hound's nose for profit during a crisis, congratulations, you're the worst person in the world. Which, again, I, we can address that. You know, Are you the worst person in the world for wanting to make a profit? 
during a crisis, especially since you're not just like profiting off of um, somebody's life or death decision. We're, we're talking about the oil market here. Also, you can probably make some money storing oil and selling it later. Another thing we learned, uh, apparently. This rough math is definitely missing a lot of factors, including the cost of crew and maintenance fees and other expenses, but the point isn't that you could actually make money if you bought a rusty oil tanker. The point is that the world, this is the important part, the point is that the world we've built on pumping oil incessantly and trading it on markets is absurd and capitalism is uniquely incapable of properly administering goods in a crisis or any other time. It's the same reason why farmers are destroying crops and dumping milk while people go hungry and why I'm considering buying an oil tanker. Okay, so that's the, that's the frustrating part about this. That what's happening in the oil market right now is somehow the fault of capitalism. Uh, now, people that follow the oil market, and, and especially have been following these production cuts, etc., we, we know that there's one unique thing about the United States. I shouldn't say it's unique, but certainly unique compared to most of the other major oil producers, in that our country, our federal government, cannot just tell oil producers to, to decrease production willy-nilly. They... <laughs> That's, that's not an American thing to do, right? right? We say, no, the businesses have the freedom to make those decisions for themselves. They can, you know, it, it's just not something that happens. They can voluntarily cut production, but we as a government cannot, right? And, and at face value, you could say, well, that's capitalism. And, and look how it's ended. They, they pumped way too much oil. And now there's nowhere to store it. And this is capitalism. As uh, he says here, as Jordan Pearson says here, um, Capitalism is uniquely incapable of properly administering goods in a crisis or any other time. Right? right? Okay. So the problem with this is, is first of all, this isn't really a problem of improperly or unable to, to administer goods in a crisis, right? If, if you want to make that claim about any other thing in the market right now, whether we're talking about N95 masks or... or, or uh, um, antiviral drugs or whatever, or, or anti-malarial drugs or whatever. Okay, but, but that's not what we're talking We're talking about the oil market here. And the oil market has had no problem in administering goods during this crisis. Nobody has had a shortage of oil. That's not the problem we're dealing with. Nor a shortage of, um, of gasoline or oil products or anything like that. The, the only shortage has been on storage, right? And, and you have to understand that the reason... Okay, the... Part of the reason that WTI in particular is in such trouble, in such dire straits right now, along with most of the U.S. producers, the landlocked U.S. producers, why they're in such dire straits right now is not due to capitalism. Now, yes, there's the Saudi-Russian oil war, which increased supply as a whole and sent a shock through the markets. And, of course, there's the massive demand shock, the massive drop in demand because of the COVID-19 and the recession. Okay. However, you have to understand that in, you know, January, February, U.S. oil producers, a lot of it shale oil, were setting new records for oil production in the United States ever. I don't know the numbers. North of 12, maybe north of 13 million barrels per day. That's a lot of oil. And was that enabled by capitalism? No. As, as some people would put it, a lot of these 
producers were what you'd call marginal producers. They, shale oil is not cheap. Shale oil is not an easy to extract or a cheap to extract form of oil compared to what a lot of the, what the Saudis pump or the Iranians or a lot of other countries or a lot of Gulf, Gulf countries in particular, you know, a couple dollars a barrel. Um, shale oil at its cheapest is probably, you know, when it may, I shouldn't say at the cheapest, but on the cheaper end would be in the 30s, but a lot of it's 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s dollars a barrel. That's their break-even cost. So why, you might ask, would all these drillers go out there and, and, and be ramping up production, despite the fact that prior to all this, the price of oil was only you know, in the 40s, 50s, maybe the low $60 range. Why would they be pumping it out of the ground? Well, I'll tell you. It's not capitalism. It's monetary policy. It's the Federal Reserve, which is in many ways the antithesis to capitalism. Because guess what? I mean, a, a, a key part of capitalism is a market determining the price of goods, the price of things. The market decides it. The free market decides it, not a central government or a central bank. And of course, the Federal Reserve, among, of, among its many powers, including you know the, the power to print money, has the power to control one of the most important prices that there are, and that's the price of money, i.e. interest rates. And so why would it make sense for any company to go out and pump oil out of the ground to invest a ton of money into drilling, into um, the infrastructure for uh, you know, moving that oil, etc.? Why would that make sense for a lot of these shale oil companies, despite the fact that there's a very good chance that that oil is going to be at $40 a barrel and, and they're not even going to be profitable at that price? Why? Well, because they had a ton of cheap access to credit. Interest rates have been so low for so long. And, and you could add to that, you know, there's a search for a yield, there's a search for risk assets, because, hey, guess what else the, the Fed has done? They've driven down yields on, on U.S. Treasury bonds, and so investors are looking for, you know, risky corporate debt and whatnot at a higher yield. But that's ultimately how it came about. If the cost of capital, i.e. the interest rates, the cost of money wasn't so low they would have had a more difficult time servicing that debt and thus they would have gotten belly up a lot earlier or they just wouldn't have done it. U.S. oil production, shale oil production, would not have ever become, you know, maybe even gotten north of 10 million barrels a day, right? And then, you know, ultimately what would have happened is, you know, back in 2015-16, a lot more would have gotten belly up. Production would have suffered more. It would not have come back nearly as much since then and guess what? The U.S. won't be pumping the most oil they've ever pumped out of the ground heading into one of the biggest demand shocks we've ever seen. They'd be pumping considerably less oil. Now, would the Saudis and Russians pick up that slack? Maybe. Somebody, I mean, somebody probably has to, right? Given what the demand was prior to this demand shock. But, but the point of what I'm saying here is that this isn't a capitalism problem. This isn't the markets deciding that it somehow makes sense. The markets decided that it makes sense to pump oil out of the ground because one of the key signals for the market, interest rates and the price of money, the price of capital, cost of capital, the ability to service the debt that a lot of these firms took on was totally mispriced by the Fed, the antithesis of a free market, of capitalism. 
So let's dispense with that nonsense. Um, and, and let's not make this about attacking. It's somehow the, the government is the ones that should be distributing this. Look, do you want a government-run oil company? I mean, is that honestly what this guy's advocating for? Obviously, he's advocating, well, we shouldn't have it at all. Well, okay, fine. You want a government-run solar companies, wind power, hydroelectric, nuclear power? Okay. But, okay, coal and, and oil are here to stay with us for, for quite a while. Do you want a, really an oil company that is nationalized? Do you want to nationalize the entire oil sector here in the United States and make it government-run? They're more efficient at distributing it during a crisis, despite the fact that there hasn't been any problems with distributing oil in the United States, to my knowledge, you know, to a great extent, since, like, what, the 70s with some of those oil crises, and that was more of an import problem? Is that what you want? Because then you're going down the same path as Russians. Russia and their, you know, a lot of their state-owned companies, I mean, they're famous for their, for their oligarchic nature, in the word oligarchic, um, for their for their corruption, for a lot of times their inefficiency. How about Pemex? That's uh, that's Mexico's oil company, you know, run by the state. It's got a ton of problems, right? Heck, they were dealing with this huge problem of people tapping into their pipelines and stealing oil, right? A ton of people died doing that one day. It's not, it's not something to laugh about, but you know. And, and a lot of that was corruption-based, actually. Corruption-based tapping of these oil pipelines and whatnot. How about Saudi Arabia? I mean, is Saudi Arabia, Iran, Kuwait? I mean, are those the good guys with those state-run oil businesses? Right? Where you have these, you know, this quasi-relationship between government and, 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 and uh, corporations and the CEOs and whatnot? Hey... I, for one, am not a fan of that whatsoever. How about Venezuela? I think Brazil's got one too, Petrobras, right? They have Petrobras, they have one, a state-run oil company. I mean, it, it's just a bad idea. I think China has one. <laughs> I mean, what, what good can come of that? Yes, the, the U.S. can make money off of that. Granted, we wouldn't be making a whole lot of money off of that with shale oil being what it is in terms of price unless the price went way higher. Um, it just doesn't makes sense so let's dispense with that nonsense um the the real problem here is the cost of capital it's nothing more than that none of this would have ever happened if um the cost of capital wasn't so cheap production would have never been what it was in the united states and we wouldn't have nearly as significant of an oversupply problem um finally finally what what i want to talk about here is is another thing about capitalism and this, this is tough for me um, this is, I, I just saw this suggested in my Facebook, 26 cruel messages from greedy landlords, right? And, and what this is, is there's a bunch of people that I think many of us could agree with are, are not very kind landlords. You're reading through these, you know, it's the worst of the worst, right? Um, you know, people saying, hey, can we shut off their water if they're not paying their rent? You know, one guy, I think I took a house off, uh, took a door off of somebody's um, apartment or house or whatever, uh, etc. You know, just you know, one guy's like, "Hey, I see you have your stimulus check. Are you going to pay your rent?" And they're like, "How do you, how do you know that? How, how do you know I have my stimulus check?" Well, I checked with the IRS. You know, like that's okay. Violation of privacy, you know, probably, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? So, not very nice landlords, all things considered. However, 
what's what's bugs me about this is that landlords, yes, I get it, tend to be, you know, there's this caricature of a landlord, of just not a nice guy or gal, very self-centered, in it for the money, doesn't really care about tenants, cares about the rent, um, generally does as little as possible in terms of of helping them out with with rent or helping them out with maintenance or whatever. I get that caricature of of landlords. Now, is it true? Is it not? I'll let you decide from your own experiences. I think like so many things in life, there's there's those individuals out there, but they maybe aren't necessarily the rule. They're more maybe sometimes the exception. Maybe not. You know, I've never lived in New York City, never lived in some of these high rent or really sleazy neighborhood or anything like that. So I, I can't speak to that. However, one of the problems with this that, that I've had, this idea that landlords are greedy and should be expecting rent during this downturn, is that those landlords are, are people, but, but they're also, you know, more or less businesses. I mean, landlords, yes, I get it. Some of them maybe don't need that money right now, but, but I, I really don't like that idea that tenants should be deciding whether or not landlords need that money, right? I don't know the financial situation of all these landlords, but it's similar to if you were making a mortgage payment to a bank and the bank said, hey, look, um, you know, maybe we'll give you a month off here, uh, but we, we do expect you to keep paying your mortgage payment. And, and if you can't, you know, we're, we're eventually going to start, you know, foreclosure proceedings and whatnot. You know, can you imagine people getting an uproar about that? I'm sure it's coming. People will, people will do that. But the problem with that is that when nobody pays their mortgage because they don't think the bank really needs that money right now or because they can't or both, um, well, what happens to the bank, right? When you don't pay your mortgage, that's your problem. When your entire block doesn't pay their mortgage to a small local bank, that's the bank's problem. Because all of a sudden, nobody's going to pay their mortgage and, and they're going to default and the bank's going to go belly up or, or something along those lines. Now, with a house, it's you can foreclose on it and sell it. But you're still probably going to be losing money if you're a bank in that situation. It's less than ideal. And it's even more so less than ideal when you have something totally unsecuritized, um, uh, uncollateralized, like, like a credit card or a private loan or something like that. Right? Much, much more difficult. Um, and so now, now, I mean, obviously the, the catch to all this is that banks will likely receive assist, assistance if they haven't already from government for those types of situations. Banks have a bit more of a buffer. Um, landlords potentially could receive assistance from the government. Government could just kind of pay for people's rent, you know, indirectly. But the whole concept, and I don't know how widespread that happens or not, though. But I'm just saying that that may or will happen. But the whole concept of what I'm saying here is that to say that somehow the the landlords just don't need my money right now. Look at this greedy landlord looking for his rent in these tough times is... Now, I get it. There's people that can be greedy. There's landlords that can be not very nice about it. But to just say that, you know, asking for rent or saying, hey, you guys still need to pay your rent right now. Is, is somehow just a terrible thing to do, really it shows a disconnect with how, I don't know, capitalism works, with how um, how this all works. I mean, it's it goes back to sort of things like rent control in, in large cities like New York City. You know, I get it. There's an example of landlords just jacking up rent prices with without any consideration for tenants and whatnot. But if you freeze rent, 
But the price of properties and the price to manage properties, et cetera, continues to go up. Guess what? It's no longer profitable to own an apartment building. It's no longer profitable to, to buy this property. Landlords go belly up. Or they just get out and they just sell, right? I mean, I'm not saying that like, but, but this goes back to this idea of the banks and, and, or landlords or whatever. Now, obviously, I'm not always you know, a huge guy that's looking out for the banks, right? You guys know that. They oftentimes are bailed out and whatnot, and I'm sure maybe something will happen for the landlords as well. But to just say that, like, look, your bills, your financial situation, putting food on the table, paying your own um, payment on this building, because, you know, many of these buildings are financed, they may not be owned outright, all of that is not as important as my own financial situation is really the wrong way of looking at things, I think. I mean, ultimately, you signed an agreement to, to live there. And I get it, you know, you just can't pay rent. You can't pay rent. And, and obviously, there's been some, in many places, um, legislation on that. There's been executive action, et cetera, in terms of, of not being able to evict people right now and all of that. But to just expect, you know, be able to live there free of cost and expect the, the landlord to just eat that month, eat, eat that cost because they could be, renting out to somebody else and, and you're probably still running up a, an electrical or a water bill or both, you know, to just say that they should be able to eat that cost and, and that they, you know, I matter more than them is just a really self-centered and I think a wrong way of looking at it because when everybody does that or people do it on a large enough scale, all of a sudden the apartment building isn't there for people to stay in period because now the landlord has sold it. He no longer can, can manage it. Nobody wants to buy it. And, and that's obviously problematic. So, I don't know. Rant over. Rant number two over. First one about oil and, and now about rent. And, and it's, I don't know. There's a lot of, uh, you know, in, in, in this situation, there's a lot of um, strife, I guess is a good word for it, political and otherwise. And I think it's only going to get ramped up more and more as people lose their jobs, as people um, are unable to pay their rent, as as uh, you know, finances get tough, as political you know, chasms, to, I guess, widen. They're, they're already there as they widen. Things are only going to get worse. And hey, guess what? We're else in an election year. Um, so, so buckle in. I, I guess I'll, I'll stop here. You know, I'm 40-some minutes in. But, but I appreciate every one of you still listening here at this point. Thank you um, from the bottom of my heart for, for tuning in to today's podcast. And God bless.